Bid 19 by Charles Francis Reed. In the early fall of 19 blank, I was a senior intern in the great county hospital of C. I was then nearing the close of my two years of service and in charge of a male ward of some 50 beds. Typhoid was rampant in the city, and Brown, my junior intern, and I had hard work enough keeping up pace with the motley crew sent up to us each day from the receiving ward. Beds were at a premium, though. We hurried the sad procession along as fast as we could and filled the aisles with cots. The men in the receiving ward knew, as well as ourselves, just how crowded we were, and so it was with surprise and indignation that I found one evening after supper a fresh card of admission on the table in the nursery room bearing the diagnosis of ulnar neuritis. What were Wiley and Stober thinking of to send up a case of simple neuritis at a time like this? I looked at the card again more closely. The patient gave his name as Jacques Jacquesin, and teacher of languages as his occupation. The combination taken altogether was interesting as well as irritating, and I stepped out into the ward to look him up at once. I found him in bed 19, a huge bulk of a man with a leonine head and a mane of grizzled black hair. The nose and mouth were large, and the heavy brows overhung a pair of shrewd, dark eyes. As I came up and introduced myself, he sat up in bed and greeted me respectfully in correct English. By this I judged him to be somewhat different from the ordinary charity patient, and sitting down by his bedside it drew him into conversation. That is, I asked him a few questions, and after that there was no need of any farther drawing out. It was evident that his facile tongue had gained him the admission his ailment of itself could never have secured. With the sure choice of an expressive phrase after a moment's easy hesitation, with the odd, slightly foreign accent, a sprinkling of French, Italian, and German phrases, and a singularly fascinating inflection, Jacques improved himself a wonderful raconteur. Never have I heard a man talk as he did that night, when the mood was on him and the devil in him asleep. He began with a simple recital of how he had slept in a saloon for several nights, sitting in a chair with his head in his left hand, the elbow propped upon a table, thus accounting for the left ulnar neuritis, for the relief of which he had entered the hospital. This was but a beginning, however, and when I finally reluctantly rose to go, he was describing the panorama of Strombul as seen from the Bosphorus. Just how he reached the city of the Golden Horn and through how many different lands he had passed I could not say, but I still have dim cinematographic memories of Arctic flows and desert sands of typhoon-beaded waters and frost-locked tundras. I remember, too, that as I listened spellbound, the wanderlust that lies more or less hidden away in the breast of every one of us gripped me hard fast, and I forgot the hospital and my chosen work completely, conscious only of a great longing to be up and away and to see the world as this man had seen it, and it seemed to me no man 
had seen it before. I even carried the glamour of it all into my dreams that night, and as I slept, the hospital walls melted away, leaving me free to travel out over the earth, breathing deep and looking far. Very naturally, then, when I entered the ward the next morning, my first thought was of Jockerson, and I glanced down the long row of white cots to find him, sitting up in bed, slowly rubbing the painful fingers of his left hand, and talking, meanwhile, with his neighbor in a team. To be sure, the man had proclaimed himself a teacher of languages. But I was startled, nevertheless, for the patient in 18 was a Chinese with some obscure malady not as yet fully diagnosed, owing to our failure to obtain any history, since he spoke no English. Jockison, I asked when I reached him in the course of my rounds, does your list of languages include Chinese, or was it only pidgin English you were using? He smiled faintly at this, and I noted with a queer sensation that this smile did not affect his eyes at all. I find that this man comes from Saigon, he replied, partially ignoring my query. I spent a long winter there not long ago. And do you pick up a language in one winter then? I persisted with some little irritation for, to tell the truth, I was beginning to feel uncomfortably young and inexperienced in the presence of this charity patient of mine. Oh, no, doctor, he answered gravely. He calmly dismissed the subject and began to question me concerning his hand. That same afternoon, I took him into the examining room for a thorough overhauling and soon found him to be suffering from more than a mere neuritis. His big frame was loosely covered with a dry and wrinkled skin that hung upon it in flabby folds, the withered skin of an old, old man, though he gave his age as but sixty. Vague pains shot through him here and there, and beneath his eyes the flesh puffed out unhealthily. Jockerson, I demanded bluntly at length, what drug do you use? Laurel, he returned tersely, and in quite a matter-of-fact tone as my own. How much? Sometimes as high as an ounce a day. Not usually more than half as much, though. An ounce a day? I could only repeat after him in incredulous astonishment. His tone was sincere, however, and he did not even glance at me to observe the effect of his wild statement but lay gazing out of the window with an air of courteous boredom. And how long have you taken it in such quantities, I questioned him, when I had recovered myself somewhat. I began a good many years before you were born, young man. And again, the shadow of a pitying, sneering smile twisted his lips, although he seemingly spoke without irritation. I could not do this with Jockison. Most unaccountably, I found myself overlooking the insult of his attitude as well as the affront afforded my credulity, and merely expressing wonder that he should have been able to survive for so long a time a dosage that ought to kill any two men. To this he replied very simply, I have discovered that this ancient hope of mine persists in spite of many insults, words to which I paid no especial heed at this time. You'll have to give up the chloral while your hand is getting well and let me tone you up a bit, 
I remarked without hope of any real acquiescence on his part, since I knew, from sad experience, what a miserably weak moral fiber a drug addict usually possesses. To my great surprise, however, he languidly agreed to this, and though I am positive he had access to none of the drug while in the hospital, he never asked for it, nor so much as hinted that he suffered in any way from its withdrawal. For some time, following this conversation, I was busy and unable to give my unusual patient any especial attention aside from that of the ordinary ward routine. A week passed, and with it much of my interest in Jockerson, for with a half a dozen new arrivals in the ward each day, he speedily became an old patient and not a very sick one at that. I often thought of discharging him, for we were in a shameful need of room, but there was a certain sinister fascination about the fellow that led me to put it off from time to time. Brown and I were both of us working late at night in those days, though by nine I usually left him in the ward while I went to my room to read up on doubtful cases. Finally, one evening, feeling restless and not inclined to sleep, though it was nearly midnight, I thought I would go back to the ward and look at the very sick ones once more before going to bed. Accordingly, I started out down the long corridor, fully a block in length that connects the wing where the house staff lives with the other wings in which the various wards are situated. The great hall was deserted at this time of night and but dimly illuminated while a heavy rain beat viciously upon the big windows. I had covered a third of the distance, perhaps, when a figure suddenly lurched out of a side passage at the end of the hall, fell sprawling and turning the corner, and then picking himself up unsteadily, started towards me on a clumsy trot. Even at a distance, the effort of the runner was plainly apparent as he came on, with his head thrust forward, arms churning, and feet shuffling along as if encased in leaden shoes. The effect was an uncanny one in the dim light. I had attempted to run in that same way in my dreams. Involuntarily, I drew off to the side of the corridor. If it were a delirious patient, I would rather know what he had hidden in his hands before I tackled him. Then I saw his face, and then he had passed me without recognition. Brown! Brown! I cried out. Perhaps I only whispered it, however, for my mouth was dry and he ran on without heeding, awkwardly, drunkenly, to disappear through the swinging doors at the end of the hall. I have seen many a strong man die in sudden agony, but not in the face of one have I seen the naked terror I saw in Brown's that night in the lonely corridor. His face was not white, but purple, as if he were being strangled. His eyes were fixed in a ghastly stare, and his tongue lolled out of an open mouth through which he sucked in the air and expelled it again in a series of convulsive gasps. Suddenly I felt the sickening sag of my own lower jaw as I gazed down the hall at the door, still trembling with the impact of his body. The infection of blind, unreasoning fear seized me, and I turned about to follow him. I had gone but a few steps, however, I am glad to say, when reason reasserted itself and I pulled myself together. My duty was toward my ward, no matter what horror might be lying in wait for me there. I turned with an effort and hurried on down the corridor. 
To my great relief, as I turned into the side passage, I saw that everything was dark and quiet as usual. Miss Hazeltine, the night nurse, coming out of the ward just then, with her lighted candle in her hand, met me by the nurse room door. She greeted me with a serene smile, and I noted that the candle did not even waver as she held it out before her to extinguish it. Evidently, she had seen nothing very startling, and I turned from her without comment to the door of the examining room just across the passageway. This was slightly ajar, and I could see that the room was brightly lighted. I think Dr. Brown is in there with 19, the nurse remarked as she entered the nurse room, making it still more evident that she knew nothing of Brown's flight. Mastering an instinctive repugnance, I stepped quietly into the room. Jocasine lay in bed with his back to the door, apparently asleep, but as I came round to the foot of the bed, I saw that his eyes were not closed but wide open and seemingly fixed upon a shadow beneath a table in the corner of the room. "'What is it, Jacassin?' I exclaimed shortly, for I could see nothing under the table, and yet, strangely enough, I suddenly felt that I might, at any moment, if his gaze were to continue. At the sound of my voice, he turned his head with a visible effort, and as he did so, and I looked fully into his eyes, I think I must have betrayed myself in some manner, for I caught again the shadow of a sneering smile upon his lips as he bade me good evening in calm, even tones. But his eyes, his eyes as he turned them upon me, with the eyes of one returned from the dead and returned to tell of the horrors of hell. In their cold, lusterless depths, I saw an awful fear lurking, not uncontrolled, as I had seen it in Brown's face a few moments before, but held in leash, as it were, by a supreme effort of the will, and ready, at any moment, to leap to the front like a wild beast, ungovernable. It was several minutes before I could control myself sufficiently to inquire after Brown in a fairly casual manner. He left me very suddenly a short time ago, was the slow indifferent reply. I am sure I do not know what has become of him. Suddenly with this I blazed up in white-hot wrath, and springing to the side of the bed, I shook a fist close before his sodden eyes and sardonic mouth. You miserable old rascal, I jerked out. What do you mean by that sneer that is always about your mouth? What did you do to Brown tonight, and who are you anyway? Tell me, and be quick about it. It was a child outburst, and I repented it as soon as I had finished. I was worn out, mentally and physically, and had not yet recovered from the shock my junior intern had given me. Not so much as the flicker of an eyelash betrayed the fact that Jocasin even heard me, until I had finished. Then he pulled himself slowly and laboriously into a sitting posture and leaned slightly forward, still with that fiendish, thousand-year-old smile upon his lips. Young man, he murmured in low, emotionless tones, I am weary for the moment of suffering alone, and because of these foolish words of yours, I shall make use of my ancient privilege. You shall taste tonight of what I must endure. Always. There was nothing dramatic in Jocasin's delivery of these strange words. Quite to the contrary, there was an air of utter exhaustion about him that I found my sudden anger growing quite as suddenly cool again. 
The man was evidently suffering from the withdrawal of his daily dose of chloral, and his words were only the wanderings of a half-crazed dope fiend. Brown was just beginning his hospital life, was not yet accustomed to the strange things one sees and hears in a great institution where a multitude of queer characters are gathered together. Smiling at myself for not thinking of this explanation before, I turned away without further remark and I started to leave the room in search of the nightman whose help I should need in getting Jockerson's bed back into the ward. I had already partially opened the door leading into the hall when a chill of dread all at once swept over me and my knees weakened, forcing me to cling to the knob for support. Strangely enough, however, in place of utilizing what little strength I still possessed to push on out of the room, I turned about, impelled by a hard fascination, and looked behind me. The floor of the room had disappeared beneath a cloud of black vapor that curled and eddied about as if it were boiling, though my feet, as I stood in it, were deadly cold. My first thought was of fire, and I opened my mouth to call, but the words refused to come, and besides, there was no smell of smoke, only a faint, disagreeable odor I could not analyze. Jockerson laid back, supported upon both elbows with his face turned away from me, as if looking again into that patch of shadow beneath the table in the far corner of the room. His chest heaved tumultuously, and his breath rattled in his throat as if he were upon the verge of dissolution. Then as I stood there, a helpless paralytic in the presence of this apparent death agony, I felt the grip of the vapor about my thighs, and, merciful heaven, the things I now made out with straining eyes, taking vague form in the sullen shadows, crawling out from the corners of the room, floating up from beneath the bed, writhing about my limbs, and over all, the calm, brilliant illumination of the electric lights. I struggled again to cry out, but could no more utter a sound than a man in a dream. Cold sweat sprang out upon my face and hands as I clung desperately to the door that beneath my weight slowly closed itself behind me. The vapors were now eddying about my waist, and I could barely make out the bed with the struggling form upon it. The breast was still heaving, but the head hung far back between the shoulders while the throat worked spasmodically, and presently all was swallowed up in the black fog as it rose breast-high about me, bearing with it an intolerable odor. What I saw floating and swimming about in the depths of this noisome flood I shall not attempt to describe. Even Poe, brave man that he was with the pen, did not venture to tell us of the horrors of the pit. We have, all of us, our secret dreads and fears, and strangely enough, as far back as memory serves me, mine have been of the charnel house and the loathsome things that creep and writhe and scurry about in its dark shadows, a fear doubtless originating in some childhood impression, but long since become an integral part of my mental phenomena. That part of me beneath the rising level of the black flood now seemed turned to stone while my lungs were full to bursting. For what seemed an age I stood there, staring into the depths with eyes that would not shut or turn away, until at length, goaded into the mad desperation of a trapped animal, I slowly wrenched myself about and contrived to open the door a trifle and look out across the passageway into the nurse room opposite where Miss Hazeltine was busied with her back to me, 
getting out the early morning medicines. The surface of the vapor was by this time at my throat, and I was faint with the smell of it. Subconsciously, I caught myself wondering if my face were as ghastly now as Brown's and Jocelyn's had been. Just then, the nurse turned about and stepped to the door, evidently to listen to some sound in the ward. I tried to call to her. I tried to open the door farther and step out, but the horror was already at my lips and I choked. Then she glanced across at me and I saw her reel and fall to the floor as if shot. At that moment I did not doubt but that I was dying. I could breathe no longer. I could not see, and as I sank below the surface, something cold as death wrapped itself about my neck and strangled me. A sudden sharp pain and a rush of fresh air revived me to find that I had fallen through the door and out into the corridor, striking my head upon the floor and the fall. What followed I am ashamed to relate, for I am not, naturally, a coward. Before me, only a few feet away lay the unconscious nurse, while behind me, even then about my feet, curled the thing I had just escaped, and I scrambled up and ran madly, leaving the helpless girl there alone, never stopping in my flight until I lay panting on my bed behind a strong door securely locked. It is painful for me to attempt to describe the remainder of that night. If I dozed, it was only to stand once more in that awful vapor with Jocasin's labored breathing in my ears. If I waked, it was to picture it all again and again. The thought of my cowardice in leaving the nurse alone was a torture sharper than the rest, however, and toward morning I forced myself to unlock my door with the intention of going back to the ward, only to find that in my miserable weakness I could not bring myself to open it. At seven I took a cold plunge, and feeling somewhat refreshed, went down to the dining room for an early breakfast. I found Brown there before me, looking pinched and ashen gray. As I came in, he looked up and stared inquiringly, but we drank our coffee in silence, nor did either of us have anything to say as we walked down to the ward together. Miss Forbes, the head nurse, was already upon duty, and of her I inquired casually after Miss Hazeltine to find to my great relief that she had appeared as usual when she went off duty. She had evidently said nothing about her experience of the night, for which I was profoundly thankful, as I had no desire to be branded in the hospital as a madman or a coward. As we entered the ward, Brown and I both glanced involuntarily down the row of cots to nineteen. Jocasin was there, sitting up in bed quite as usual, rubbing the painful fingers of his left hand and apparently chatting meanwhile with the man in twenty. Brown's jaw dropped as he stared. "'Rodney, is he talking with Charlie?' he exclaimed in a low voice, for the head nurse was standing nearby, and our nurses were already beginning to talk too much about nineteen. Now Charlie was our phonetic shortening of the unpronounceable name of a Lithuanian who had been in the ward some months with heart trouble and whose mother tongue was certainly his only one. French, German, Italian, Chinese, Lithuanian? Brown went on sotto voce. What is the man anyway, Wadney? He was trying hard to speak lightly, but his lower lip quivered with excitement. Brown, you were under the weather this morning, I answered briskly. Go to the laboratory and make the analyses for today, and then get out of the hospital for the while. It'll do you good. All right, if you say so, he replied, 
and turned back without further comment, though when I glanced after him a moment later, I caught him standing on the threshold of the ward, staring down the room again. When I came to Jockerson in the course of my rounds, I could hardly force myself to stop, but as he was still a patient in my charge, I paused to ask a few routine questions. And so you speak Lithuanian too? I could not refrain from adding, though I had promised myself I would not talk with him but would wait until later in the day when Brown and I would take him into the examining room and have it out with him there, alone. Yes, I have been in Lithuania many times, he returned listlessly, but with the shadow of a subtle smile about the corners of his unscrutable mouth. I hesitated. The very air about him seemed tainted, but mindful of my sorry showing the night before, and conscious of a certain challenge in his attitude, I lingered at the foot of the bed and studied him in silence, endeavoring to read the mystery of his mocking lips and fear-haunted eyes. For a time he returned my gaze steadily and without apparent constraint. Then he abruptly broke silence with a request for his discharge from the hospital. For the sake of my self-respect, I struggled to conceal my immense relief at this, but without success, for his lips bent into a still more evident sneer as he turned his eyes upon me. But your hand is not well yet, Jockison, I remonstrated, unwilling to acquiesce too readily. No, but it soon will be, he answered negligently. I have lingered here too long already. I must move on. I must move on. And again he muttered the phrase so low, that I could barely make out the words, I must move on. Very well, then, I asserted resignedly. I ached to get the fellow out of the ward, but I could not let him go without an explanation of the affair of the night, an explanation he did not appear at all disposed to volunteer. I pulled myself together with a hasty resolve and stepped round to the side of the bed. Jockison, I exclaimed low enough to prevent the other men hearing. You must explain last night before I let you go. You drifted in here from heaven knows where. You have apparently traveled everywhere, and you seem to speak all languages. You call yourself a Frenchman, yet you look like a Jew. You claim to drink enough chloral to kill two men, and yet do without it perfectly well when it is taken away from you. And to cap it all, you play the men who have taken care of you a scurvy trick of hocus-pocus in the dead of the night. Now what have you to say for yourself, and be quick about it, for I haven't much more time to spend on you. I concluded with a bitter vehemence, for a sense of the injury he had done me quickened fast as I spoke, and I could have choked the man as he lay there for the foul memories he had forced upon me by a miserable trick. Again, Jockison listened without the movement of a muscle. Even at the moment, I could not but grant it the supreme control of grudging admiration." nor did he even deign this time to reply when I had finished. But suddenly, a strange thing happened, a thing so incredibly strange that I hesitate to record it, lest you think me altogether the weak creature of suggestion. As I stood there, in a ward full of men, many of them laughing and talking, and with the bright morning sun pouring in at the east windows, the faint order of carrion again assailed me, and the fear of the night before grappled me fast. I stood there chained to the bedside, while through the windows I could see the feverish activities of the busy street that runs in front of the hospital. I struggled to move, and the fear only tightened its grip. 
Then I heard Jocelyn's voice, as if from a long way off, saying, And is my answer quite sufficient? The words came slowly, as if uttered in pain. I could not speak, but with an effort I bowed my head slightly, and as the fear loosed its hold quite as suddenly as it had seized me, I turned and looked down to find Jocusin twisted about with his face buried in his pillow, and the men in the beds nearby staring at us in solemn curiosity. My first impulse was to get out of the room as quickly as possible, but pride came to my rescue, and I hurried on with the shaky pretense of completing my round. When I reached the nursing room again, I made out Jocusin's discharge and told Miss Forbes to get him out of the ward as soon as possible, an order that was obeyed with surprising alacrity, for he was gone when I returned a half hour afterward. Late that evening, Brown came into my room still looking pale, but otherwise his normal self. He had not been in the ward since morning, and when I told him of Jocusin's discharge, his face lightened up with relief. Good, he exclaimed, but sobered immediately as he added, but I'm sorry I didn't have it out with him by daylight. You may be thankful you didn't, I rejoined dryly, and told him of my experience of the night and morning. He listened gravely and without any apparent surprise. I thought the old fiend had put you through too when I saw you this morning, he commented when I had finished. Perhaps you would like to know just how he made a fool of me. I had told Brown of seeing his wild flight through the corridor, and it evidently hurt his pride a bit to think I should have seen him in such a sorry plight, even though my own had been as bad or worse. I lit my pipe and settled back in my chair. This was very different from the night before. Well, I don't know that there is very so much to tell after all, he began somewhat awkwardly. My experience was much the same as your own, with a difference, though. Jocusin's mocking civility and a subtle smile got on my nerves when I had been in the room with him a short time last night, and I spoke angrily to him much as you did. He answered me in almost the same words as he used with you, and then I laughed at him. Then suddenly that same black fog began to rise about me as it did with you, only in it I saw a seething mass of angleworms. He laughed a shrill, forced laugh. Sounds foolish, doesn't it, Rodney? But they were immense ones, and there were millions of them, all slimy and whitish and limp, twisted and intertwined, just as you see them in an old bake can the kind boys use when they go fishing. I've never been able to go the things. I never could go fish with them like other boys, and when they would crawl out on the walks after a heavy rain, I used to take to the road, and so I do yet. So you see what it meant to me to see and feel an almost solid mass of the things rising steadily up around me. If I hadn't fainted, I'd have gone stark, staring, mad. He jumped up to pace the room. Oh, he jerked out. I could have cheerfully killed the old Jew this morning when I saw him sitting up in the bed so placidly. So you too thought he was a Jew, I said, as he lit a cigarette and pulled it nervously. I haven't a doubt of it. And you think it was some trick of hypnotism he played on us? No, Brown slowly applied. Not in any ordinary sense of the word anyways. How was he to know the most disgusting and terrifying thing to suggest to each of us? And he certainly suffered himself, I added. Yes, poor devil, Brown muttered soberly. In a way I can't help pitying him. 
He gave me the impression of a man facing something more horrible than death every minute of the time. I believe it was the quintessence of elemental fear that he transferred to us last night by some species of mental contagion we know nothing about as yet. All that we did was to visualize this sensation after our own minds. My junior suddenly vaulted in his stride and faced me expectantly. Possibly so, I granted, but what about the man himself? Who is he? Brown gave me a quick look, then turned away to the door. How should I know, he rasped as he opened it. He called himself a wanderer. Farther than that, you will have to do your own guessing. The end.